Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, my name is Spencer, and in my podcast called The Dictionary, I literally read from the dictionary but add in my personal comments and stupid jokes to make it more interesting. Episodes are family-friendly, short, and air every single day on basically every podcast platform. Come join me on this journey filled with edutainment. Hello and welcome to How Did This Not Get Made? This is the podcast all about the movies you never saw, the scripts that were never filmed, and the ideas that never even made it to the page. My name is David Spencer. And my name is Daniel Kaka. We are back for season three. Yeah, season three. I never thought we'd make it this far, but we here we are. <laughs> here we are. Like, lo and behold, there are more movies that didn't get made. Mm-hmm. And we have been getting suggestions nonstop. Really? That's awesome. I don't know what it is about our email show. I definitely state this every time that whenever we finish a season, I kind of mm-hmm. wait a little bit, let the emails roll in, and then we'll do the show. But for some reason, like as soon as we put out that email show, I got like a dozen more emails and be like, you should do this and this and this. And so like, (laughs) you're not going to hear that until the end of season three. But we are not here to talk about emails. We are here to talk about a superhero, but not of the DC variety. I know we give DC a lot of love (laughs) and a lot of flack for everything that they don't produce, but we are changing it up this time i didn't want to go for dc like i usually do because there's plenty in that pool but instead i went a different direction and decided to go marvel now we've done marvel before yeah we've talked about spider-man but have we done any other marvel stuff i don't believe we have there has been things in passing where we've talked about Marvel before and definitely when we went through a lot of especially with the Justice League we started noticing that a lot of the writers and the artists they were kind of flip-flopping back and forth between Marvel and DC and we're starting to see a lot of the parallels there yeah besides Spider-Man we haven't really focused on any other Marvel movies or Marvel characters yeah I think it's funny how we've done so much DC talk on here and Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry, DC Talk. <laughs> We've done this so much 
talk about DC properties on here, but we haven't really done a whole lot on Marvel. And I was trying to think about why that is, but of course, I think it's just because Marvel wasn't really seen nearly as much of a bankable property to a wider audience until really the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. Like before that, it was like DC movies. Marvel wasn't even really trying movies. They would sell their rights out to Roger Corman to make awful, (laughs) fantastic foreign Captain America of the 90s. But there wasn't nearly as many failed attempts because there just simply weren't as many attempts at doing Marvel things before the 2008 Iron Man, really. No. And there was a lot of things that came into play with this. Like we saw with Stanley, he wanted to make sure like Spider-Man that anyone who did it, they made sure to get it right. They couldn't just like interpret it however Mm. they wanted to. Yeah. But they're also trying to like sell out their, their properties to, to different productions. And for a lot of, movie studios they looked at superhero movies as like something with a big inflated budget but with very little payoff they would either like break even or the chances of them making money were very seldom that is interesting that you bring up stan lee's relationship with marvel in that you know dc doesn't really have somebody who's like the guy in the Mm -hmm. same way that stan lee is seen for marvel and of course stan lee's actual contributions to marvel uh, is certainly a topic for debate but i mean yes you don't have a George Lucas of DC or a Stan Lee of DC to the same degree. And so I think that's a good point that that colors it as well, because especially it seems like Stan Lee was really excited about projects using Marvel characters, especially in like the 90s and stuff. But he was throwing his voice into cartoons and yeah. video games and stuff like that. One of the unfortunate things about Marvel going on to, or at least a lot of the animated Marvel cartoons going on to Disney Plus is that a lot of times they would chop off the intro. Yeah. And a lot of those intros had Stan Lee actually voicing the narrator. If you go onto YouTube and look up the intros to some of these animated series, you will hear Stan Lee as like the voice of Marvel. I have this image burned into my memory of playing the Spider-Man game for the N64, and it starts off with a Stan Lee narration of, Welcome, Welcome true believers, believers and newcomers alike. Spider-Man co-creator Stan Lee here. Once again, we find our hero Peter Parker, better known around the world as the amazing Spider-Man in a heap of trouble. But this is just the beginning, Spidey fans. So get ready for a true superhero action thriller, packed to the brim with thrills and chills, twists and turns, more super villains than you can shake a web at, and of course, non-stop web-slinging, wall-crawling action. That is forever burned into my brain is like, this is what superheroes are, is Stan Lee enthusiastically talking to the audience about describing the thing that you are about to play or watch or whatever. Have you watched What If yet, Dan? Yes, I have. Yeah, at the time of recording this, only the first episode came out, which honestly I was a little disappointed by. I think I was way too hyped for the show and that first episode was... Definitely too rushed. A little too much they crammed into a half hour. Hopefully the rest of the show is good, and certainly it's interesting. But it's being narrated by Jeffrey Wright, who's playing this character of The Watcher. Reality is not a straight line. Every passing moment is a chance for a new offshoot, a new variation. In fact, there are more realities than you can possibly fathom. An infinite number of what-ifs. 
I'm Jeffrey Wright, and as the voice of the Watcher in Marvel's What If, I can see what few others can who is comics character who always narrated the what ifs comics who's just supposed to be somebody who watches all these stories happen but in the movies it started to become not quite canon but almost canon that stan lee was the watcher that every stan lee cameo is actually the same character and the whole reason for this is because there's a scene in guardians 2 where they're like zipping around through hyperspace whatever and they pass old man stan lee talking to these aliens about the time he was a fedex delivery driver anyway before i was so rudely interrupted at that time i was a federal express man which, of course, is one of his cameos from Civil War. So that mm-hmm. became like, oh, Stan Lee is actually the Watcher, and all of these Stan Lee cameos are the same guy. Huh. If he was still around today, then they could have him narrate the What If show like the classic animated series. Ah, would be so good. Can somebody who can just do a spot-on Stanley voice double just redub the narrations for What If for me and just like... Do it in that enthusiastic Stan Lee style. Or they could do the Anthony Bourdain thing where they put oh. his voice through AI. And- <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I don't know how comfortable I am with that. But uh, anyways, the, yeah. the point is, is that Stan Lee's connection to Marvel has always been super fun and definitely caused maybe not an obstacle, but a little bit of a higher standard for Marvel stuff to get made. Yeah, I feel like Stan Lee's job the entire time as a spokesperson was like, this is good. This is good stuff, you guys. Like, no one <laughs> believes me. No one believes me that this is good material, but it, it, I trust, trust me, it's good. It's good. <laughs> like, I think that was one of the other wonderful things about him is he was just such an unabashed fan of everything Marvel stuff and everything superheroes and was just so excited. Our superheroes are the kind of people that you or I would be if we had a superpower which sets them apart from all other superheroes published today and seems to be the reason that they're actually far more popular than any others. Usually you get creators like, think about George Lucas, who couldn't care less about Star Wars anymore. And like after the reaction to the prequels, pretty quickly tried to distance himself from that. But Stan Lee is just constantly like, look at this, this is so cool, superheroes, yeah, Yeah. Excelsior. (laughs) It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think we can move on from Stanley because the uh, superhero, I know we haven't mentioned him yet, but you could probably read it in the title. We are going over Iron Man. Now, you might be thinking, wait... Iron Man did come out, <laughs> and it's launched a whole Marvel series from there. So we're going to go back, and we're going to kind of go through a lot of the different projects that eventually led up to it. And it's a very similar process from when we've seen, like, with any superhero yeah. movie. We saw it with Superman, we saw it with Batman, we saw it with Spider-Man as well, where it's like there's so many different failed attempts until we finally got what we have today. Yeah. But before we go into this, I do want to ask you... So I did not actually see the first Iron Man in theaters. It was much later oh. on that I started getting into the Marvel series. But considering at the time, Iron Man was just another superhero movie. Mm-hmm. The thing that at this time that I was most excited for was Batman, Christopher Nolan's trilogy. And I was like, mm-hmm. that is what a superhero movie is. Iron Man came in and everyone's just like, man, we're, we're here for Batman. So that I kind of like missed the boat initially for that but for you how were you introduced at least into the mcu or iron man how did that happen okay so i am a massive mcu fanboy i've talked about it on podcasts in the past but mine and alexa's wedding was marvel superhero themed with me dressed up as captain america and her dressed up as peggy carter well like wearing formal outfits color-coded yeah. and inspired by it's these like characters. It's like Disney-bound. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I had this bow tie that had like Captain America shields on it and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have actually seen every single MCU movie in the theater with the exception of The Incredible Hulk. But every single other one I saw in the theater, especially including Iron Man. When that first Iron Man movie came out in 2008, I was in high school. I was like 16, but I absolutely loved that movie. I even, Mm -hmm. at the time, I was trying to write a blog, which hopefully doesn't exist anywhere online anymore. (laughs) I even wrote a blog post about why I thought that Iron Man was a better movie than The Dark Knight. Hmm. Because that was the summer where everybody was all about The Dark Knight, as you were saying. But for me, it was like, no, no, this is where it's at. This is fun. And the character goes on a bigger journey, which I kind of still hold true to. You know, Batman Mm -hmm. doesn't change too much in The Dark Knight. I think if I look back on it now, I think Dark Knight is definitely a better movie. Dark Knight has a lot more going on theme-wise, but... Iron Man as a movie has an actual character arc to it that hadn't been done in superhero movies at the time. We don't really see a lot of obviously morally objectionable people become a superhero and be changed for the better. And it was really well written, really well acted, super fun to watch. Like there were so many memorable moments. I remember not expecting Jeff Bridges to turn into a bad guy. And that turn was like really exciting to me. I was all about that movie. And that is still, I got to say, one of the top tier MCU Mm -hmm. movies. I am still super impressed with it. You know, a couple of months ago, Alex and I did a whole massive MCU rewatch and reminded how much I enjoy that movie. And one thing that jumped out to me, there are like four smash two moments in that movie where it's like a character says one thing and then smash cut to them doing the exact opposite most <laughs> of the time it happens with roadie roadie yeah. is constantly like no we're here to talk business yeah, no on the private plane all, no sake 
Yep, and then smash cut to them parting. Or the same thing when he's like, oh, can't you say it was a flying exercise when Iron Man is like first with the planes and he's on the phone with Rhodey and Rhodey's like, it's not that simple. And then smash cut to it was a training exercise, <laughs> which is just really funny to me that they constantly, constantly do that. But I don't know. It works. It's a fun movie and I super duper enjoy it. After doing this research and then re-watching Iron Man, I guess I never really appreciated how well done this movie is. And once I go through the history, because we are actually going to go through the history of Iron Man from the comics, mm-hmm. you'll actually see like a lot of the seeds that are planted that are eventually put into the movie and how brilliantly it was all put together. And I'm sure we'll go into this as well, but I'm definitely under the impression that it was kind of a miracle that 2008 Iron Man was made as well as it was and at all. I mean, the amount of improv that was on the set for a special effects heavy superhero movie is crazy that they were able to pull that off and make a cohesive fun movie and i know there's so many other behind the scenes stories that i'm definitely excited to get into so let's get started so black sabbath's iron man was released in 1970 as part of their album paranoid (laughs) the story behind the song was that when hearing tony yomi's guitar riff Ozzy Osbourne reacted and said it sounded like a big iron bloke walking about. (laughs) Geezer Butler then began writing lyrics around the title of the song Iron Man about a time traveler who travels to the future to see the apocalypse. When he returns to the present, he is turned into steel by a magnetic field. He tries to warn everyone of their doom, but he is ignored and mocked. Because of this ridicule, he seeks his revenge, causing the apocalypse he saw from the future. When they recorded the song, Ozzy sang the first lyric, I am Iron Man, through a metal fan to get that distorted effect. Despite the title, the song has no connections to the Marvel comic character, Iron Man. I, for the longest time, thought it did. My first interaction with that song as somebody who wasn't really exposed to much music as a kid was Mm -hmm. middle school jazz band. We played Iron Man in middle school jazz band. That seems very inappropriate. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) Song about the apocalypse. Perfect. (laughs) I mean, it was no lyrics. It was just the instrumentation of, you know, the horn section doing the the melodies and everything. It's the first thing that everyone learns on guitar, that next to uh, Smoke Smoke on on the Water. water. Yep. (laughs) I just have to say one more thing about the song. I do love that clearly that song had a massive effect on the movie, and I'm not sure how much of an effect it had on the character as a comics version of Iron Man, but it seems very clear that Tony Stark's love of... 70s and 80s rock and metal clearly is derived from the existence of the song Iron Man down to the last line in the movie being an obvious nod to Iron Man. Truth is I am Iron Man. But the other wonderful thing about that is like you can extrapolate that further. That line at the end of the movie, it affects so much of the rest of the MCU, especially that the MCU is really the first superhero thing to make secret identities not really a thing 
Nobody really has a secret identity except for Peter Parker in the MCU, in large part because the one that kicked it all off is like, you know what? No, I'm going to let everybody know exactly who I am. I am Iron Man. Iron Man is a Silver Age Marvel comic. If you remember, the Golden Age was a lot of the DC stuff. Marvel came in around the the Silver Age. He was created through a collaboration of Stan Lee, scriptwriter Larry Lieber, story artist Don Heck, and Jack Kirby, who was the cover artist and the character designer for the first comic appearance. Iron Man first appeared in March 1963 in Tales of Suspense, number 39. To put this into context, this is near the end of the protested Vietnam War. Later on, Stanley would explain, I'm going to come up with a character who represents everything everybody hates, and I'm going to shove it down their throats. That is an exact quote from him. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm going to come up with a character who represents everything everybody hates, and I'm going to shove it down their throats. He's a billionaire playboy that's an arms dealer for the military, loosely modeled on Howard Hughes, who is a young tinkerer, engineer turned billionaire pioneer, overall terrible and troubled person. Also, Tony Stark kind of looks like Clark Gable, but there is no confirmation as to whether or not they actually uh, <laughs> modeled it after that actor. I love how the movies lean even further, not with Tony Stark, but with Howard Stark, lean super heavy into the Howard Hughes character. Oh, definitely, yeah. It's like one-to-one. <laughs> this seems like a character that would feel from the start, but instead it did quite the opposite and was, according to Stan Lee, popular with the ladies claiming that iron man got more fan mail from women than any <laughs> other superhero all right yeah even more so than thor <laughs> <laughs> iron man's original origins begin with tony stark the son of howard and maria stark because of howard's drinking problem this caused him to be verbally abusive towards tony as a kid which caused him to turn to tinkering with electronics as a coping mechanism planting the seed that hardware is more reliable where humans are unpredictable. Tony excelled in his academics as he enrolled in MIT at just 15 years old and graduated with two master's degrees just four years later. He got a master's in both engineering and physics. I think they use that exact thing in the 2008 Iron Man movie as well. Like they've got the little scene where he's getting an award and they're going over this exact same history. At age four, he built his first circuit board. At age six, his first engine. And at 17, he graduated summa cum laude from MIT. Now, in his 20s, Tony became more reckless with his behavior, getting himself involved in skiing, parachuting, and hang gliding, and in his attempt to escape his mundane life. When Tony was 21, his parents died from a car crash, and he inherited his father's company, Stark Industries. Under Tony's leadership, the company went from being an arms supplier to a multi-international leading-edge electronics manufacturer. Later, Tony would buy the car company that his parents drove during the accident, which claimed that it was a brake system failure. And this was to ensure that the brakes on any of those cars would never, ever fail again. Turns out the crash was a setup by, do you know who? I don't know who in the comics. I know who in the movies. <laughs> well, it is not the Winter Soldier. It was actually planned from his rival company, Oil Republic. 
which was later renamed to Roxon Energy Corporation. Yeah, I've always heard it as Roxon. Roxon is one of those like forever in the comics things. It's funny because in the MCU, Roxon gets like barely mentioned a handful of times. Like it is present in Agent Carter. And then also in Loki, they go to Roxmart in 2050, which is supposed to be the Walmart of Roxon. They haven't really done much with that name in the MCU, but it's kind of like just at the fringes. Now, there was a storyline where Howard was having an affair with the Roxon CEO, Hugh Jones' wife, in which that could have been the motive. But Mm -hmm. because Tony had no experience running a business before, he then promotes his secretary, Virginia Pepper Potts, Mm -hmm. to be his executive assistant. So he would dump a majority of his responsibilities on her, which we definitely see in the first. Well, I mean, he kind of does in the first movie, but definitely in the second movie where he's like, okay, you're CEO now. I don't want to deal with this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. While Stark was in Vietnam developing weapons for the U.S. government, he was captured by the Vietnamese guerrillas with a booby trap. When he wakes up after an explosion, he discovers shrapnel has hit his chest and near his heart. You may remember this from the film being in Afghanistan, but whenever Iron Man gets retconned, they will usually update it to like its current or most recent war. In the 90s, Tony Stark was injured in the first Gulf War, and in 2005, the Iron Man Extremist series, they updated Tony's location to Afghanistan. So 2005, three years later, that's why he was in Afghanistan for that film. But yeah, Tony was kidnapped by Wang Chu, a warlord that served the Mandarin. While captured, Tony was forced to make a doomsday weapon with the assistance of another captive, Ho Yinsen, a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Instead of a weapon, the two worked on an arc reactor to keep shrapnel away from Tony's heart, and together they built the bulky Mark I iron suit to escape. I didn't realize how much of the movie really is like one-to-one to from the original comics. There's an Iron Man animated series that came out in the early 90s, and they actually have like a two-part origin story where he basically does exactly this. The only difference was they didn't make a Mark I suit. Instead, they were just like, all right, we're going to give you the yellow and red suit, and like this is what we developed (laughs) in the bunker. (laughs) Yinsen distracts Wang Chu's men, and gives Tony time to power up the suit and ends up sacrificing himself, and Tony uses the suit to avenge Yinsen's death. After Tony escapes, he meets up with the pilot James Rhodes, whose helicopter was shot down. Together, they figure out a plan to get back to the U.S. When Tony got back home, he began to make improvements on his suit as soon as possible because he felt like with his injuries, his time was limited, so why not make the most of it? Yeah. He also improved and reduced the size of the chest plate and the arc reactor so he could wear it under his clothes, but also incorporate it with his armored suit, which we definitely see in the movies. With all this money sinking into his suits, he thought he should try and make some money off of these armored suits and began working on a sellable suit called the Human Machines. Tony was using his suit to help those in need, but when he was helping a circus with escaped lions and tigers, he noticed that much of the public was scared of his appearance. His suit was still a gray iron suit. He then asked Marion Rogers, a woman who was dating at the time, who would later become Madame Mask, what he should do with the suit, and she suggested that you should paint it gold. All gold. He's a gold <laughs> Iron Man. I love gold! Iron Man continued, 
and remained his secret identity of Tony's, but many became suspicious when Iron Man kept showing up at Stark Industries. Tony then told the public that Iron Man was his bodyguard, which technically not a lie. As Tony's heart condition became more public, he was eventually healed when he got an artificial heart transplant. In Tales of Suspense number 45, which came out in September 1963, Tony was testing out his Stark race car and he ended up crashing the vehicle. Luckily, he was saved by ex-boxer Harry Happy Hogan. <laughs> to pay him back, Tony then hired him as a chauffeur, which oftentimes he would end up just being like a bodyguard instead, but as a, as a chauffeur, I guess, on a for his taxes. Mm -hmm. Just a little publication history. In September of 1963, Iron Man teamed up with the Hulk, Thor, Ant-Man, and the Wasp to defeat Loki in the very first Avengers comic. Yeah. It was the Wasp that would name the group the Avengers. Later, the team would discover Steve Rogers' body and have Captain America join the team. Tony even developed the shield for Captain to use. Tony Stark would shortly down the road become the leader of the Avengers. Iron Man remained in his gold suit until Tales of Suspense number 48, which came out in December of 1963, where his iconic red and gold suit known as the Mark II was revealed. The design was done by Jack Kirby and Sol Brodsky. Iron Man wouldn't get his own comic until March 1968. So he was part of Tales of Suspense from 63 till 68 and then got his own comic. Part of that was because after issue 99 of Tales of Suspense, that name changed to the Captain America series instead. <laughs> Just love that. They bring back Captain America and then he's instantly way more popular than anybody else. Yes. <laughs> now, I wanted to take a brief sidetrack in this research because we got a lot of firsts with the characters that we're familiar with in the MCU. I want to talk about Jarvis. Now, in the movies, we know him as the AI assistant to Tony Stark, voiced by Paul Bettany, and we saw him portrayed by James Darcy in Agent of Carter and in Endgame as the assistant to Tony Stark. Yeah, which was, I think, is the only time that something from those pre-Disney Plus TV shows actually makes it into a movie Yeah, is James Darcy playing Jarvis again. In the comics, he simply served as an assistant to Tony Stark, much like Alfred to Bruce Wayne. Now, there is no confirmation onto whether or not Jarvis was named after Alfred Pennyworth's father, Jarvis Pennyworth. <laughs> but knowing that the comic book writers and artists were jumping back and forth between Marvel and DC, it would not surprise me if that was an influence there. Yeah. But Edwin Jarvis first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 59, which was in November of 1964. In there... The comic actually had two separate stories, one of them which followed Iron Man, the other one followed Captain America. Oddly enough, Jarvis first appeared in the Captain America story because he had been kidnapped and Cap knew mm. to save him because he was Tony's butler. <laughs> Throughout the majority of his run in the comics, he has been an assistant to not only Tony, but to the Avengers, especially since they were using Tony's mansion and tower to facilitate the team. He did not have any powers, but he was trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat, so if he needed to defend himself, he could. And in an odd storyline, there was a time where he defeated Doctor Doom all by himself. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, not only is Jarvis considered an official member of the Avengers, he's actually the most consistent member of the Avengers out of any Marvel character. As in, so he he's, is, like, been a official team member of the Avengers more than anybody else? Yes. 
So even if Tony Stark is kicked out of the Avengers or he's doing mm-hmm. his own side thing or he joins another team, <laughs> Jarvis is always there. He's always at the tower. He's always at the mansion. And there's even some like heartwarming stories where like he even helps out Peter Parker. Like there's a time where he just couldn't afford books and school supplies. So actually Jarvis comes in and like and helps him out. And that's awesome. You know, it's actually really cool. So there's the Jarvis that we know now, which is the just a very intelligent system. The first time that we see this AI was actually seen in House of M, which came out in August 2005, in which it was simply known as Jarvis, which was the AI in Tony's suit. The forced acronym was made up for the movies and then is now adopted for the comics. It's something they never really point out that much, but Tony is full of just... Mm -hmm obviously forced acronyms like i think the most extreme example of that is edith in no way home the even dead i'm the hero (laughs) that is just a wonderful thing that i love the idea that this is somebody who knows how ridiculous his acronyms are and is being purposefully obtuse and purposefully insane with it what was the one that they did in far from home it was barf oh yeah i believe that was in civil war yeah because he first used it in Civil War, and then that's part of Jake Gyllenhaal's whole anger towards Tony. <laughs> Throughout Tony Stark's storyline in the 70s, Tony would lose and rebuild his fortune through corporate buyouts, takeovers. S.H.I.E.L.D. tried taking over the company by buying up the majority of the stocks to make sure that they had a steady supply of weapons. There was even a time where Obadiah Stane started manipulating Tony, causing him to go bankrupt and homeless, and also bounce back with a new company, which was called Circuits Maximus. Hmm. Tony would constantly struggle with running a failing company, living a dual life of a superhero, and dealing with the childhood drama, which would lead Tony to his alcoholism, which is something that has never really been addressed in any comic books at all. It's the first time that we ever really see that. Or any character struggling with that. I know that's a really famous storyline people talk about. The demon in a bottle storyline of dealing with his alcoholism. And honestly, I think that is a big disappointment that I have with the MCU. I won't say it's my biggest disappointment because there's certainly, as much as I am a fan of those movies, there's certainly problems can be mentioned. Especially in Iron Man 2, they had a chance to actually dive into this and they decided not to and then the same thing in iron man 3 they had the chance to like really get into that and they kept like skirting around it iron man 2 had that weird stuff of the arc reactor poisoning his blood or whatever there was aspects of that that was trying to be about addiction and his whole party scene is definitely trying to be a scene about somebody who is just going off the edge on their alcoholism But they just never commit. And it's so frustrating watching the later Iron Man movies that they it's like they have this opportunity, but they just never do it. Like, honestly, I kind of wish that Iron Man 2 existed as a Disney Plus show where like in the same way that they spent 10 episodes going into Wanda Maximoff's trauma, you could spend 10 episodes going into Tony Stark's alcoholism. Yeah, you can go into alcoholism and you can easily tie that in with his PTSD, which was definitely apparent throughout the series. Yeah, which is a thing that they could have done with Iron Man 3. Like, they were definitely having him deal with PTSD, and they could have tied that in with the alcoholism as well, and then they just didn't. Yeah. I get it. It's movies for kids. (laughs) Well, initially, not so much, but yes, eventually, yeah. (laughs) Tony was dealing with his alcoholism, and this forced James Rhodes to actually step up and become 
Iron Man. So he was mm-hmm. actually Iron Man for a little bit. The suit would eventually drive Rhodey mad. It was explained in the comics that the Iron Man suit was made for Tony's central nervous system, and this led Rhodey to go oh. on a rampage, forcing Tony Stark to suit up and stop him. Weird. Rhodey insisted that Tony become Iron Man again, but Tony refused with the mentality that his suit was rotting him from the inside and was the cause of why he was losing all of his fortunes. With this in mind, Tony would eventually return as Iron Man, but with a new suit called the Silver Centurion. It was in Iron Man number 200, which came out in November 1985. In the cinematic universe, you can actually see the suit in Iron Man 3. It is labeled as the Mark XXXIII or the Mark 33. Hmm. Instead of gold and red, the suit was silver and red and had a Dragon Ball Z piccolo type shoulder pads on it. <laughs> Obadiah Stane was also working on his own armored suit, which was called the Iron Monger, mm-hmm. to battle Tony in his new suit. Like that famous Pro-ZD sketch. So he's like Iron Man, but he is bad, bad guy. Big, bad Iron Man, Iron Man, Iron Monger. <laughs> Obadiah saying he accidentally kills himself when he removes his helmet and blows his head off with a repulsor ray located on his gauntlet. <laughs> After Iron Man's brief team-up with the West Coast Avengers, his next solo series is probably the most iconic in his run, the Stark Wars, also known as the Armor Wars. Coming soon to Disney+. Plus. So this would have been issues 225 to 232, released in December of 1987 and would go on to June 1988. In this, an industrialist, Spymaster, acquires the plans for the secret technological innovations that's found in Iron Man's suit and turns over the plans to a business rival, Justin Hammer. Hammer then began selling those designs to criminals, which forced Tony to stop the misuse of his technology. Tony figured out a way to disable anything using his technology, which also included the tech that was used by S.H.I.E.L.D. and the U.S. government when they were using the Mandroids from Stark Industries. Because Tony was able to do this, the U.S. made him public enemy number one and saw him as a threat to the national security. He convinced the government that this wasn't his fault, blaming that the suits had gone rogue. But Captain America saw through this lie, urging him not to take on the U.S. government. This is the first time that we actually see a major conflict between Captain America and Iron Man. Tony continued shutting down his tech, but Cap urged him not to, and then tried to physically stop him, in which... Tony Stark, he electrocutes Captain America, not lethally, but just enough to get him out of the way. To avoid future blame, Tony told the U.S. government that Iron Man has been fired and that the real man under the suit was a scientist named Randall Pierce, who was then turned over to the government. So he just kind of threw some random employee and was like, yeah, that's the guy. The U.S. continued to attack and destroy Iron Man through force, but Tony managed to survive. Because of this, he created a new suit with more advanced technology. Tony claimed that the old Iron Man was dead and that the new Iron Man was being manned by an anonymous employee. Tony discovered that the new suit was causing nervous system damage, much like with Rhodey, with what he experienced before. So to prevent this, he engineers a way to remotely control his Iron Man suits. 
But after failing to defeat the Masters of Silence, he found it very difficult to control the armor remotely rather than actually being in the suit. This leads him to develop the Variable Threat Response Battlesuit. This suit also failed to resolve the issue for the deteriorating nervous system. His suit wore at him so much that he eventually had to fake his own death so he would have to stop wearing it. Rhodey was unaware that Tony faked his death, and when he discovered, he was not very happy that to be deceived like that. Rhodey would take up the mantle of running Stark Industries and would fight off major threats using the variable threat response battlesuit, which he later renamed War Machine. Now, Rhodey would take on his own adventures, and he actually first appeared in Iron Man issue 282 in July of 1992. So you can actually see, I can't recall the cover, but I know like the cover of Iron Man was like, War Machine is there. It looks like someone had spray painted over Iron Man to say like, War Machine, and like, this is his comic, this is his story instead. 1992, like for War Machine to come that late in the series, I never realized like how close everything that's canon within Marvel, I didn't realize how late to the game everything seemed to be. A lot of the stuff in the MCU, especially recently, is pretty recent comic stuff. In fact, a lot of the storylines that they're about to get into were storylines and characters that were written while the movies were first coming out. You know, we're about to get Miss Marvel as her own Disney Plus show, and that is a really new character. Miles Morales came out in like 2009 or 2010. Civil War came out while the movies were already underway. There's a lot that happens in the MCU that is actually super recent in comics history. Yeah. During the 90s, though, Marvel Comics was seeing a massive dip in their sales, and the only comics that were thriving at the time were actually X-Men. My guess is because the X-Men animated show was so great, the sales probably reflected that. So an attempt to shake things up, much like with DC, they decided to do a reboot in a series called Crossing, which was in 1995. In this storyline, Iron Man is looked upon as a traitor to the Avengers when he was actually under the control of King the Conqueror. Iron Man was being used to defeat and kill members of the Avengers. So the Avengers' solution to defeating Tony Stark is to go back in time and get a young 19-year-old Tony Stark to battle present-day Tony Stark in an older Iron Man suit. It's like reverse looper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you said earlier that Stan Lee said that part of the inspiration for the creation of Tony Stark was shoving everything that people didn't like into one character. And I think it's interesting how Stan Lee is never too open about his political opinions, but was simultaneously anti-war and definitely had a lot of criticisms of American imperialism, especially in Captain America comics of the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. But he's also very pro-capitalism. And I think Tony Stark is definitely a pro-capitalism character. I think if you look at movies, Tony Stark, it's basically saying, what if Elon Musk was a superhero and is very pro that kind of tech billionaires can be good or are good and not inherently problematic. Yeah, I think Batman definitely leans harder into that of like, capitalism is good type thing. And these anarchists coming in. The rich guy can definitely know what's right and wrong for everybody. Yes. So I just wonder how much of 
when Stanley says it was like everything that people hated, how much of that was like, oh, other people hate this versus this is stuff I also hate. Because it seems like there's some character traits of Tony Stark that Stanley would not like and some that he would absolutely like. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I just bring that up to be like, it is so funny to me and makes perfect sense that Iron Man keeps becoming a villain of the Avengers because of how many things he stands for being problematic, especially when you look at the Civil War arc. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he battles 19-year-old self and whatnot. During the battle, older Tony, he snaps out of this trance and he remembers all the murdering that he had to do. And he ends up sacrificing himself in order to kill King the Conqueror. So instead of young Tony going back to his timeline, he then stays and resumes the role of Iron Man and denies any familial relationship to Tony Stark, (laughs) but also keeps the same name. Sure. (laughs) This would then lead the Avengers to go on to an even bigger foe. And we might actually see this in the MCU onslaught. My name and fear it. I am Onslaught. Is Onslaught a X-Men villain? You know why I associate Onslaught with X-Men is because I have some X-Men theme expansion of some Marvel card game that it features Onslaught as a villain, but that doesn't necessarily mean he actually is an X-Men villain. <laughs> uh, no, he came out of X-Men. He was created by Professor Xavier and Magneto mm. to defeat Onslaught. The Avengers, but more specifically the non-mutant heroes, trying to distinguish the difference between them and X-Men, had to sacrifice themselves. Many readers believe that they were dead, but these superheroes never actually die because of author Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, who published Heroes Reborn in 1996 to 1997. This allowed Marvel to reboot and update their Silver Age heroes. This is explained away when the character Franklin Richards, which is the son of Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, and Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, creates a pocket universe in order for those Avengers that sacrifice themselves to live. Jim Lee was later given the reins for the new Iron Man storyline. In this reimagined Iron Man, his suit is redesigned and has like exhaust pipes going out of it. And this (laughs) suit is known as the Prometheus. Although when Tony is restored, he no longer is a teenager, but is instead 35 and has a goatee. So he just ends up being (laughs) regular Tony Stark again. When Tony is presumed dead... Stark Industries, or technically Stark Enterprises, was sold to Fujikawa Corporation, and Tony would rebuild his new company called Stark Solutions, where he was primarily a consultant for other companies and clients. A major storyline item is when Tony tries to save an android by downloading his program into his suit, which was influenced by Ultron, and in this one, Ultron was created by Hank Pym. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think that's pretty much canon in the comics that Hank Pym came up with Ultron. Yeah. It's one thing I actually really like about the movies is that they will remix storylines. Like the Winter Soldier arc is a classic example where there's like some aspects of that that are from the comics and then some aspects of it that are from different series of the comics and some that are entirely new. And I really love how they're constantly mixing things up. WandaVision is part House of M part. There was a Vision series that came out like two or three years ago about Vision living in a suburban family. And it's like picking and pulling different storylines, different characters and combining them in different ways and, you know, remixing all the universe together. Speaking of remixing, because this is the best segue I can think of to this. 
I just realized the shirt you're wearing, Dan. You did that on purpose, right? I did. Okay. Dan is wearing the (laughs) Bruce Lee DJ shirt that Tony Mm -hmm. Stark wears in Age of Ultron. And like five minutes ago, I put that together. I was like, wait a minute. I've seen that shirt before. (laughs) That's a Tony Stark shirt. I try to be as appropriate as possible for all of our episodes. (laughs) And I thought this was definitely the most appropriate for this. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Ultron is, he's kind of in the program, he's kind of in the suit, but he waits for his opportune moment to strike. And while he was fighting a whiplash, Tony got shocked by him and Ultron manipulated the suit so that he would go into cardiac arrest. This shock then gave the suit a mind of its own and then saved Tony from dying. I didn't really actually read the comics, so I don't know where Ultron went from there. I imagine that he just kind of escaped from the suit and he's like, my job is over. And then the suit took over and it's like, no, we got to save you. But the sentient suit was accepted by Tony and would actually assist with him and actually merge with the suit and then start doing its own missions. Now, that was all great until the suit started killing people. Tony then had to battle his own sentient suit. During that battle, he suffered another heart attack now the suit, it has this automatic reply of just like, it's kind of like the doctor's code of like, do no harm or something. Mm-hmm. Like he sees Tony having a heart attack and he's like, I got to save him no matter what. So the suit recognizes this. He actually turns himself into this cybernetic heart to replace Tony's. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the heart would constantly have to be recharged. And to avoid this, Tony went back to using his original suits, more specifically the Mark IV. This was just a complicated roundabout way of getting the old Iron Man suit back into the series. In this series, Tony does reveal that he is indeed Iron Man, but only after saving a puppy from a speeding car and simply not having enough time to put his helmet on. (laughs) He is also the U.S. Secretary of Defense for a short period after discovering the U.S. government is using a lot of his tech. So, I mean, who better suited for that job than the person who's making the tech for them? For sure. Mm -hmm. In House of M, Tony would step down as the Secretary of Defense after a drunken encounter with a Latvian ambassador. He would then publicly, quote unquote, step down as Iron Man, but continue to be Iron Man in secret. These events happen during the Avengers Disassembled series, Mm -hmm. which is when the Stark Mansion or the Avengers Mansion was destroyed and the team had to move to Stark Towers at their headquarters for the new Avengers. Iron Man suit would get another reboot after Tony was injured. With the help of Maya Henson, Tony was able to get a techno-organic virus injected into his nervous system, which would be known as the Extremis armor. The armor would be stored in the hollow parts of his bones and would be easier to access when Tony needed a suit of armor, which could be summoned by his brain. Extremis also accelerated his healing, boosted his immune system, He got new and improved organs, which I don't exactly know what that means. (laughs) They're new and improved, you see. You get new organs. You're like, what'd you do with my old organs? Don't worry about it. And then he had the ability to directly interface with other machines that are directly around him. As a side effect, he's become much more aggressive. And even though he can process information faster, his human brain had a difficult time keeping up with this and would cause Tony to hallucinate and see the deaths of those he felt responsible for. 
After an accident where Tony Stark's suit has been hacked and used to kill people, he is now in support of the government legislation called the Superhuman Registration Act that would hold accountable the actions of superheroes and would put a divide between superheroes and the Avengers that would lead to the events of Civil War, which was a series that came out in July 2006 and ran to January 2007. This storyline established the Tony Stark-Peter Parker relationship because Tony was able to convince Spider-Man to be on his side of the issue. Peter would eventually live at Stark's tower and become Tony's assistant. With the help of Mr. Fantastic, Iron Man, and his allies, they would find and imprison rogue superheroes in the negative zone known as 42. In the battle between Iron Man and Captain America, Spider-Man begins to see the error in Tony's ways and actually joins Captain's side. So he's basically being like Black Widow was in the movie. Yes. <laughs> it would have been interesting to see Spider-Man switch from that side, but I feel like it wouldn't help the next movie, Homecoming. Yeah, this is one of those things that I've heard said about the way the character is in the comics. Again, I haven't read any of the comics. And that this definitely feels true to the characters of the MCU, that Peter Parker kind of represents the intelligence of Tony Stark mixed with the ideals of Steve Rogers. In fact, there's like a lot of people who joke about Peter Parker is the child of Iron Man and Captain America. <laughs> That's his two dads battling over the soul of Peter Parker, which parrot he wants to go live with. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the way that the story was played out, that obviously wouldn't have worked in the movie version of Civil War. I'm not the biggest fan of Civil War, the MCU movie. I think it's a movie that claims to be about these like big questions of, you know, freedom versus like surveillance, kind of asking some of the questions that Winter Soldier asks, but it kind of abandons all of that in the second half of the movie and just becomes a much more interpersonal storyline, which is fine. I just feel like it doesn't give us the story we were promised in the first half. It stops being a battle of ideologies and becomes... It just becomes a battle battle. Yeah, about being upset that Bucky killed Tony's parents. And I feel like if we did have a character who is standing in for that Peter Parker role in Civil War, if somebody who was like battling over the soul of... And again, Black Widow kind of fills that role a little bit, but not really... I do think that would have made for a different and possibly more interesting movie. I don't know. I feel like Civil War should have been two separate movies and the first half where it's all about the ideologies of these characters maybe could have happened later. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the comics, it ends a little differently in the final battle. Vision actually shuts down Iron Man's suit mm -hmm. while Captain America is just beating him senseless. Cap eventually stops and then surrenders to prevent any more bloodshed. Mm -hmm. After all these events is kind of settled for a bit, Maria Hill, she concedes her role as the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and puts Tony Stark in charge instead. When Captain America is being brought into S.H.I.E.L.D.'s custody, he's actually shot and killed by crossbones. Mm. Many of the anti-registration heroes then blame Tony for Captain America's death. Mm. Very different direction there. Yeah. The next time we would see Iron Man is in World War Hulk, which was written by Greg Pact and published in 2007. Prior to the events of Civil War, the Hulk was shot into space by another band of superheroes called the Illuminati, which Iron Man was a part of before. He wasn't actually part of the Illuminati when they shot him up into space, but I think it was around the 80s 
I believe that Tony Stark was kind of part of the Illuminati. I didn't leave that in the story of Tony Stark just because it was like a weird aside and then he just kind of came back to the <laughs> Avengers. But in this, Hulk is now the king of the planet Sakaar. And then he comes back to Earth afterwards to fight those who sent him into space. And that's where some of the ideas in Thor Ragnarok come from. Yeah. Basically, that is the history of Tony Stark and Iron Man in the comics. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery and I saw the Golo commercial and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. We are actually going to start going through the history of Iron Man through cinema, the ups and downs, mostly downs until we finally get to the <laughs> Iron Man that we know today. So this was super cool. And I mean, as I said earlier, I know a lot of like stuff tangentially to the comics, but I didn't realize some of the stuff from the movies that actually was taken verbatim from the comics you know again like i said it earlier but that origin story is it's really cool to know that that's one for one <laughs> the same thing yeah it's really cool it's almost like sin city yeah and you read the comics and you're just like man this is like from the page to the screen just <laughs> almost replicating that yeah i love getting that iron man history deep dive and now I'm really excited to get into the actual stories of the movies. Yeah. So let's dive into that. So we mentioned this before, but it's hard to imagine now that Marvel films were kind of looked at as a joke <laughs> and DC superhero films were the thing that were dominating the silver screen. Yep. This all stems from the 1990 Captain America film, a low-budget American-Yugoslavian production distributed <laughs> by 21st Century Film Corporation that financially tanked. The film starred Matt Salinger as Steve Rogers and was directed by Albert Payun, who had just come off of directing Cyborg with Jean-Claude Van Damme. I have not seen the whole movie of the 1990 Captain America, but I have watched 10 or 15 minute best of moments on YouTube. <laughs> you Happens to be the best damn candidate out of 600 volunteers. A secret experiment gave one man the strength of a hundred. 
rest of the world. He's just codenamed Captain America. And the power to save millions. The Jerry's have an experimental rocket ready to fire at a target somewhere in the United States. Only he could defeat a superhuman madman. They got a fellow called the Red Skull heading up their outfit. It was definitely a movie. <laughs> Again, it is one of those things where it's like, ah, yes, the Captain America origin story, exactly how it's told in the first Avenger, and I assume exactly how it's told in the comics. Mm -hmm. Before that, the only notable Marvel presence was probably Japanese Spider-Man, the Punisher, and And Howard Howard the the Duck. Duck. Yes. (laughs) I believe Howard Duck is the very first Marvel movie. He was in... One shot in one of the trailers for What If. Oh, Supposedly, we're going right. to get yes, Howard the was. Duck in What If. <laughs> there were other potential productions like James Cameron's X-Men and Spider-Man, which we mentioned before in our Spider-Man episode. There was even talk about Wes Craven taking on Doctor Strange, which was going to be written by Bob Gale. Mm. And then Roger Corman, he was working on the Fantastic Four. From the pages of the world's greatest comic book adventure... Four heroes on a daring mission in space, but something went wrong. I do like the idea of Wes Craven, Doctor Strange. I hadn't heard this I before. I do too. I like the idea of horror directors doing Doctor Strange. Yeah. Like, Doctor Strange needs to be done by a horror director. And I know <laughs> right now we currently have Sam Raimi, yep. which I know who is famous for doing Spider-Man, but- Before that, I mean, he was a horror guy. He was a horror director and kind of still is. Yeah. Like he still like goes back to his roots every once in a while. Yeah, I saw Drag Me to Hell. That was a fun movie. Oh, I love Drag Me to Hell. <laughs> the thing is with Drag Me to Hell is that if you do not know Sam Raimi's style, yep. like if you have never seen Army of Darkness before or Evil Dead, and you don't understand, like, this is horror, but silly. Mm-hmm. And then you watch Drag Me to Hell. You're just like, the hell is this movie? This is <laughs> awful. But if you know Sam Raimi, it's brilliant. It's so good. <laughs> I recently rewatched the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. And to be honest, I was like, this does not hold up. First one? Oh, I need to rewatch the second one. I love the first one. I am so excited for him to do Doctor Strange, though, because I really want him to go full on weird, silly horror. It's also the first Doctor Strange movie was directed by Scott Derrickson, who directed Sinister oh, and yeah. The Exorcism of Emily Rose. This is a perfect fit for, <laughs> for him to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Wes Craven, Doctor Strange. That would have been fantastic. Now, at this time, Marvel was not committed to just one studio like DC or how they are today with Disney. Instead, characters were shopped around to different studios willing to take on the risk Around the 1990s is when Universal Studios obtained the rights for Iron Man and soon got to work developing it. They hired Ed Neumeyer, who is known for writing Robocop and Starship Troopers, to write the script. Comic book artist Neil Adams was hired on as the art director. And Stuart Gordon, who had done Reanimator and Dolls, he was asked to direct the film. Hmm. Gordon, he actually brought on Neil Adams because he had illustrated the movie poster for his film, Warp. I like that the writer of Robocop and Starship Troopers, which are two movies that are very famously criticisms of far-right ideologies, you know, especially Robocop is super against billionaires and capitalism and how that ties into the police state. So it'd be really interesting to see that writer do a movie about a billionaire who becomes a police officer for the world. I don't know how that would go. (laughs) I think he would have done something interesting in it. It would have been super interesting. I did find out a fun fact about Stuart Gordon. 
he was the director for this. So he wrote the script that was called Teensy Weensy that was being shopped around. And eventually it turned into Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, weird. <laughs> Back to Iron Man. This story would have focused on an older Tony Stark having come out of retirement for one last fight. <laughs> Given Newmeyer's violent content and Gordon's horror background, this would have been a very different Iron Man that we have today. Now, there isn't much known about the storyline. Not even the villain is known from the script, but eventually this fizzled out and we didn't hear this project ever again. And after six years, Universal gave up on the film and sold the rights to 20th Century Fox. They're a new script was being put together by Jeff Vintar, who's the guy who wrote iRobot. And then by his request, he actually had Stan Lee come in to help him develop the script as well. Mm. Now this plot, we are gonna do a deep dive into because this script is out and you can read it. What year is this script from again? This would have been around 90s, mid to late 90s. In this one, we first see Tony Stark trapped under a pile of rubble. He is convinced he's going to die. We then cut back to the events prior to this where Tony is giving a demo presentation for a new fireproof Redeemer Rescue armored suit. Jeremy Bland, his colleague, insists that they should focus more on battle Redeemer suits, which were the same suits but equipped with military-grade weaponry. Tony was against the idea that his suits would be used to kill rather than save lives. The Stark shareholders were not happy with this decision, though. Tony soon after found himself a targeted victim for an assassination, having been shot in the chest by one of his target tracking smart bullets. His assassins were Whiplash, Jigsaw, and Virus, who managed to infiltrate his facilities and steal one of the Redeemer suits. Tony crawls into a rescue suit, runs a diagnosis, and attaches his heart to the device to keep him alive. Tony, inside the suit, manages to fight off the villains and escapes. To no surprise, we find out that Jeremy Bland is behind the assassination attempt. Tony sneaks into his rival company's facilities, AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanisms, where we meet MODOK, which <laughs> he's a weird, big-headed cyborg. Yep. Machine organism designed only for killing. I kind of wish we saw him for real in, in the MCU because he has a huge presence oh, yeah. in Iron Man's history. He's just such a ridiculous character, and I would absolutely love to see him show up in an actual movie. Biomutated DNA molecules were implanted in my cerebral cortex. I was bombarded with isotopic gamma rays. My mind was growing beyond imagination. But in this movie, he has a henchman. His name is Chameleon. Here is where we learn that Modoc was truly behind the assassination, and he was trying to steal Stark's tech for his own use. With this knowledge, Tony goes to his private lab and begins building his own suit to fight off any threats to himself and his business. Here he becomes the invincible Iron Man, which was going to be the name of the movie. Mm. Soon after, we get a scene of Iron Man testing out his suit flying around. Modok realizes he's accidentally created an even bigger threat. Modok finds a way to remotely control Tony's suit and uses it to kill an innocent person, making Iron Man look bad. 
Now, Iron Man is the target of police and the US government. Jeremy Bland then takes over as the CEO of Stark Industries. Bland, who is given his first press conference as a CEO, suddenly dies when a piece of machinery inside of him implodes, placed there by MODOK. Iron Man escapes from the police, goes back to AIM, and faces off with MODOK. After a huge battle, Tony blows up AIM and defeats MODOK and his goons. Is then the true story of what happened with Modoc and AIM is revealed, and this clears Tony's name and Iron Man. It's so funny that in their first story of this character, it would be somebody framing him to look like a villain or something. And it's like, before we even know this character as a hero, that's the story they're going with. Definitely seems like an odd choice for your first Iron Man movie. I mean, I don't know if that borrows anything from a comic book storyline, but it's definitely not one of the things I think of when I hear Tony Stark. And I think they were taking a lot of liberties into this as well. And I know even though Stan Lee was involved, and even looking at the character Jeremy Bland, Jeremy Bland was made up for the movie Hmm. and didn't actually come from the comics. You could have just used Justin Hammer then. You could have used Justin Hammer. You can use Ebedai Stane. Like, there are so many that you can draw from, but they just chose not to go in that direction. Justin Hammer, who's the best character in the MCU. You know, you don't just go and try and kill the guy. I think, if I may, you go after his legacy. That's what you kill. But in 1997, Nick Cage caught wind of the script and was interested in the Tony Stark role. Of course! Of course Nicolas Cage wants to be a superhero. Mm Mm-hmm. But he soon left the project for a for sure project, Superman. (laughs) Yep. But in 1998, Tom Cruise then expressed his interest in playing the role of Tony. This was soon after he established himself as a action hero after the film Mission Impossible, which came out in 1996. When Cruise was asked about the missed opportunity 20 years later, he stated, I love Robert Downey Jr. I can't imagine anyone else in that role And I think it's perfect for him. I love the idea of Tom Cruise as Tony Stark. I remember seeing a thing floating around if the MCU was made in the 90s. Here's Mm -hmm. who the cast would be. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen those. All of the different characters, but who would their 1990 counterpart be for each of these roles? And I think like Keanu Reeves was Doctor Strange or something like that. Dolph Lundgren is Thor. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I believe Tom Cruise was cast as something on there, and it was probably Tony Stark. Yeah. And I I think he would be an interesting Tony Stark for sure. In May of 1999, the script was rewritten by Jeffrey Kane, who had written GoldenEye, but still nothing came of it. Mm. In the year 2000, the rights to Iron Man lapsed back to Marvel, and Marvel then sold the rights to New Line Cinema. Fox was also spread pretty thin with two other Marvel productions. They were working on Mm -hmm. X-Men and the Fantastic Four. It was also rumored that in October 1999, Quentin Tarantino was working on his own take of Iron Man, but Fox did not approve (laughs) of the material that he made. Which, Quentin Tarantino, as much as I enjoy his movies, he's not an IP person. He makes his own stuff, let him do his own stuff. Like, even when he takes on history... He needs to do a revised history of what happens in order for it to fit his vision. 
I'm kind of wary of him doing a Star Trek movie because I'm like, that's not him. He's not someone <laughs> to adapt a book. He's not someone to adapt any sort of IP out there. He is there as his own thing. Well, he has adapted a book once. Wasn't Jackie Brown based on a book? I think it was. I don't know enough about that. Yeah, it definitely was. Like a famous author who a bunch of his books have been adapted into movies. He also wrote the book that Out of Sight was based on. And in fact, there are a couple of characters in Out of Sight that also appear in Jackie Brown, played by different actors. Those movies are not connected at all. They're made by entirely different studios. Yeah. And again, I don't know enough about it. And who knows like how far off he had gone from the source material. But yeah. Elmore Leonard. That's who it is. Elmore Leonard. And I don't exactly know how true that statement is. I'd found an article somewhere that just like kind of put it in the the last paragraph of like also Quentin Tarantino was going to do something, but I mean it could have just been something as simple as Quentin Tarantino's writing agent had a meeting with Marvel yeah. and like that spurned this. Oh, Tarantino's writing uh, this script when really it was just like <laughs> one meeting in a thousand. Yeah, but yeah, New Line was pretty excited to get this title, especially with the success of Blade, uh, which they produced. Ted Elliott and Terry Razio, they're the guys who wrote Pirates of the Caribbean and The Mask of Zorro. Okay. They were the first ones to actually pitch their idea to Marvel and New Line. In an Eon Magazine interview, they said, it's funny, in many ways, Tony Stark is one of the most generic alter egos in the Marvel Comics universe. One of the most generic? Yeah, most generic huh. alter egos in the... Yeah. It is the ways that Tony Stark is different from that model that best defines the character. Specifically, he is a engineering genius. Confronted with a problem, he will work relentlessly until he solves it, which means first understanding completely the nature of the problem, then seeking the most efficient, effective, and elegant solution. Taking our cue from some of the other elements intrinsic to Iron Man, high-tech manufacturing, ties to S.H.I.E.L.D. and the U.S. government, an international businessman, and some of these stories from the books, we're going to throw Tony into a very gray world, one of which his money and personality have isolated him from for the most part. It'll be a Gordian knot of motives, actions, and events which forces Tony to solve the most fundamental questions about himself. What kind of man am I? But unfortunately, even after the pitch, uh, they were not hired for the job. Kind of a good pitch, though. It is a really good pitch. But instead, it went to the Iron Giant writer, Tim McCallies. The connection of Iron Man, Iron Giant aside, I think the themes of Iron Giant and the way that story is told, seeing that writer do Iron Man or really any superhero definitely makes sense. And I, I imagine they're looking at him and be like, Iron Giant, Iron Man, that's about the same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the same reason that Mark <laughs> Webb got hired to do Amazing yeah. Spider-Man. <laughs> Webb is in his name. We got to cast. We got to hire him. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of the variety headlines. Web hired to do Spider-Man. <laughs> so in McCanley's script, Tony is moving away from the weapons manufacturing to tech for the good of mankind, which is a common theme that I'm starting to notice. A competitor attempts to kill Tony and steal his tech. After surviving, Tony creates an armored suit to keep himself alive. Tony's mission is now to steal his design back and clear his name as a terrorist threat. Very similar to the, the first script that we're, we're getting. 
His first suit, the Mark I, can't fly, has a short battery life and limited mobility, and has lasers and not repulsors. Iron Man's second suit is the one that we're probably more familiar with. It's the classic red and gold. It can fly and all that fun stuff. This film was action-packed and included a scene where Iron Man is being chased by military jets maneuvering at around Mach 3 speeds and even leaves the atmosphere at one point. Also included in the script was Nick Fury, but not as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., but as a covert advisor to the president. He is on a mission to hunt down Tony, having believed that he is a maniac and a terrorist, but soon finds out the truth and backs off. Interesting. I like that Nick Fury is at least included. With Nick Fury being a part of the 2008 Iron Man, you know, that is such a massive moment of him showing up at the very end for that end tag. So one of the stories that I've heard about the creation of this is that was something that Kevin Feige as a producer wanted to throw in there. And he was just like, yeah, because wouldn't it be cool if we made it this whole bigger thing? And everybody else at the studio was like, this is never going to happen. But you know what? Whatever. You can just make this little scene and throw it at the end anyway. And of course, that spawned the whole universe. But the casting of Nick Fury is because in the mid-2000s, in one of their many relaunches of Marvel, they did the Ultimate series. And it was, you know, another kind of alternate universe of a lot of the Marvel characters. Nick Fury was always drawn as being white. And for the Ultimate series, they wanted him to be black. Originally in the comics, he was always white. And so when they did that Hasselhoff TV show, that's who they were doing off of the original one. And so it was like the mid-aughts that they did the Ultimate story. And a lot of times, comic artists will ask people to be kind of like the body model of like draw the character based off of somebody. Miles Morales was largely drawn based off of the look of Donald Glover because when they were writing that character, that was around the time that there was a big push to have Donald Glover play Peter Parker. Yeah. But they were like, oh, we want to base this character off of Samuel L. Jackson. And so they asked Samuel L. Jackson, hey, can we use your likeness for the design of this character? And he said, yes, only if you ever put him in a movie, I get to play him. <laughs> and that was what he wanted. He was like, that is an excellent power move. Absolutely. And that is like extremely prescient as well to be like, sure, you can use my likeness for the comic book. But if there's ever a movie, I get to play Nick Fury. Perfect. And that's what <laughs> happened. And it definitely worked out. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> we'll go back to the script. This one seemed pretty promising. And they were looking for a new director. The director that they chose at the time, Joss Whedon. Oh, of course. And they were going to line up a meeting with Joss Whedon, some of the executives over at New Line, and Kevin Feige. But it, it ended up getting canceled because that meeting took place on September 11th, 2001. Whoa. Hold up. This would have been after the X-Men movie, right? That first one came out in like 1999, right? Or 2000? Because I know Joss Whedon did one of the drafts of that script. 2000 is when first X-Men came out. Okay, okay. So it definitely sounds like hiring Joss Whedon for anything superhero at the time makes perfect sense because he would have been one of the few people working who had written for comics and written for movies. And so one of the only people in Hollywood who kind of knew both worlds. Yeah. And we almost got it. That meeting was not actually rescheduled. And then eventually that kind of fizzled out. Joss was 
trying to hang on to the idea. He actually came up with his own pitch as well, which was approved. But when it finally came time for them to be like, all right, we're ready to make the movie, he said that he was way too busy with his projects. Currently, at the time, he was working on Buffy and Firefly. Yeah. So two TV shows that he was show running, he just did not have the time. Yeah. So next in line to direct was Nick Cassavetes. Oh. He had just come off the success of The Notebook. Yeah. Because that's the best transition. You know, you go from The Notebook to a major uh, superhero. Kevin Feige was actually so confident in this decision that he prematurely announced that Iron Man would be released in the summer of 2006. Whoa, wait, so Kevin Feige was already on as producer at this time. Mm -hmm. Now, a new script would be developed by Alfred Gao and Miles Millar. Both of them had worked on Smallville and Spider-Man 2. And Leonardo DiCaprio was at the top of the list of actors considered to play Tony. Oh, that would have been really weird. It's unknown if Leo had actually accepted this, but I think this was just wishful thinking on their part, and that was just kind of the actor that they had in mind while they were writing it. I feel like that would have been a bad choice. Does the name Sarah Halley Finn mean anything to you, Dan? No. Okay, so this is one of those people who is not very well known, but she's actually super, super, super important to the success of the MCU. She is the casting director for every single MCU project. And so she is the one who saw the potential in Robert Downey Jr. to play Tony Stark, a casting decision nobody else would have made. Every single character in the MCU, she had a hand in making those decisions. And I think if there's one thing that we can say about like the MCU success, I think it has perfect casting across the board. Every actor does such a phenomenal job in their roles. There's some actors who it's like, you couldn't do anybody else, but there's definitely actors where it's like, I would have never expected you to cast so-and-so to be this character. And then they end up doing it perfectly. And the unknowns she brings in like Tom Hiddleston to play Loki. So I wonder when in the process she was brought on to the project to be helping be in charge of casting. Because I do think she is one of the most important people to the behind the scenes of the MCU. That's interesting. My guess is that when everything switched over to just Marvel Studios, I think that's my guess. I don't know for sure. But that seems like the most appropriate time for her to be attached to this and continue to go on with everything else after that being a Marvel Studios instead of this being, we're still in New Line right now. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I was looking up her credits like before the MCU and she was the casting director for not the first Fast and Furious movie, but some of the next couple, including Tokyo Drift. She was the casting director for Mission Impossible 2. She was the casting director for Scorpion King, a.k.a. The Rock's first movie. So she is responsible <laughs> for giving The Rock an acting career. She has done a ton in movies and she's like, I mean, nobody really thinks of casting as a creative position, but I think her career would make an argument that it certainly is. Yeah, it's like whenever I see casting by Allison Jones, Allison Jones always stuck out in my mind because there was a girl that I went to school with. Her name was Allison Jones. And when <laughs> I saw her name pop up, I was like, oh, cool. That's 
someone else with the same name. But then I started noticing that she was casting for every movie <laughs> and television show that I love. Like she casted <laughs> Scott Pilgrim. She casted Arrested Development. Oh, and Scott Pilgrim is like a perfect cast. I'm looking her up right now. She did casting for Freaks and Geeks, which that's a big thing. Yeah. So like I said, like wow. everything that I love, she has touched. The Good Place. Mm-hmm. Dang, she's got a great career. Yeah. What we do in the shadows, Arrested Development. Holy moly. So she's another one of those casting directors where it's like she has influenced my viewing more so than probably any other person I know. Yeah. Wow. She's got a career. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> so Alfred Go and Miles Millar, when they were putting together their script, a lot of it stayed pretty much the same as far as like, Iron Man's origin stories, they're pretty much staying consistent there of like, he's getting bogged down by some rival company and like he needs to rise up Mm -hmm. and like they put him down as the villain. He's like, no, I'm the hero and whatnot. So they just changed a few things around. They changed the villain to the Mandarin and for his love interest, it would be Pepper Potts instead. The pre-production for this, it dragged on for about two years, and then after that, just kind of fizzled away, and then they wanted a new script, which was going to be written by David Hayter. He's the one who wrote X-Men, he wrote Watchmen, there was also an undeveloped Black Widow script Mm. that he wrote as well, and that might be something that we might explore later. Interesting. But he developed his script after he had a chat with David S. Goyer and Mark Protosevich. David S. Goyer, who's done a ton of superhero stuff, mostly DC stuff. I think Batman Begins was his like first big DC thing. Yeah. He's now had his hands in most of what DC has made since then. But Hater Script is another script that got leaked. And we're going to go into another plot in this. Howard Stark is still alive. But he blames his son for a boating accident that killed his wife, Maria. He is the head of the weapons manufacturer, Stark Ironworks. Tony creates his own company, Stark Innovations, which is best known for inventing the Repulsor, a propulsion mechanism that revolutionized spaceflight. His best friend, James Rhodes, an engineer, Mm -hmm. he decides not to join Tony in his new company, but instead becomes Howard's chief of security instead. Bethany Cabe, who is a Homeland Security agent and Tony's ex-girlfriend, confronts Tony when she discovers evidence that someone is arming America's political rivals with weapons containing Tony's technology. Knowing he didn't provide those plans, he accuses Howard's business partner, Justin Hammer, for stealing his work. Soon after, Tony is targeted by a drone and is severely wounded. To prevent heart failure, Tony puts on a technically advanced chest plate to keep him alive. Rhodes discovers that Tony was right about Hammer and Tony is still in danger. Rhodey takes Tony to a secret workshop at the Catskills Mountains where they both work on an exoskeleton prototype. Bethany is then kidnapped and tortured by Hammer. While captured, she discovers that Stark Ironworks has been funding a criminal organization called Rising Dawn. Tony then uses the exoskeleton suit to find and rescue Bethany. Tony alerts his father of Hammer's crimes, but he then learns that he is just a pawn and Howard is the real mastermind and plans to assassinate the US president through disabling a Stark biochip that the Secret Service used to track the president, and this would cause him to have a heart attack. This is by the request of the vice president, 
Peter Benton. In return, he would authorize the use of Stark Ironworks repulsor-based weaponry in the military, becoming a superior armed force. Howard attempts to kill Tony, but fails, which allows Tony to fly into space and disable the satellite Howard needs to connect with the biochip. The suit is damaged by the altitude and he crash lands into the ocean. Rising Dawn then captures him, the criminal group. They capture him and then study his suit before he is rescued by Bethany and Rhodey. Tony informs the president of the assassination attempt, which prompts the president to fire an airstrike on Howard's yacht. Now, Rising Dawn then launches an attack on Washington, D.C., using the repulsor-based weaponry provided by Howard. Tony takes off to fight the Rising Dawn militia, but just before he leaves, he confesses his love to Bethany. The U.S. military joins the fight, giving the name Iron Man to Tony Stark for the first time. Rising Dawn's advantage for using Stark technology is also their weakness because after Iron Man lures them into a trap, he is able to disable their weapons with a secret kill switch he has installed in his design. The military easily defeats them. Through a radio signal, he hears that his secret lab has been destroyed by another armored suit, War Machine, and has kidnapped Bethany and lures Tony to Stark's Ironworks headquarters in Los Angeles. The man inside the suit is indeed Howard Stark. He managed to survive the yacht attack when he developed the suit using Tony's design. Howard then kills Bethany, leading Tony and Howard to battle, leaving Iron Man victorious. Tony spares his father's life, but Howard refuses to give up and uses a missile to try and kill Tony, but it malfunctions and ends up killing himself. Tony takes on the role of CEO of Stark Ironworks combining it with his company innovations to create Stark Industries, dedicated to the good of humanity and is no longer in weaponry. Hammer is arrested and provides Homeland Security with information about Rising Dawn and other terrorist organization Howard was in contact with. Rhodes becomes aware of this info, setting up future movies of the two of them teaming up to go against these organizations. Interesting. I think it's so weird that all of these scripts are like... Oh, somebody's framing Tony to look evil. I like that the 2008 movie is actually like, oh, no, no, no. Tony Stark is actually a bad guy at the beginning of this movie. And the movie is about an actual internal journey of him learning to actually have some value for human life to think beyond the dollar a little bit more. Yeah, I think a lot of these early scripts are just forgetting the fact that Tony's worst enemy is Tony. Yeah. And I think, again, this is one of the reasons why the MCU is so successful is that they do really think about their characters and they very clearly want their characters to change and grow and learn and become something new. That's what drives the stories as opposed to these scripts, it seems like they're thinking of the action and the set pieces first. Yeah, they're trying to make it a big, grandiose story. You can still do that, and definitely the 2008 movie does it, but like, what makes it so good is that a lot of it is him turning inward and be like, well, is this right, wrong, what am I doing? Yeah. I am right, no, I'm wrong. I'm just like constantly like tripping and falling on his face 
And you see him try to get up from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also like ties into what makes the movie so fun is watching these characters interact and joke around. And like, I can't say that I would have been interested in watching any of these earlier drafts of Iron Man movies. I don't think it would have launched what it did today. It would have just been an interesting one-off film to be like, well, that was just another superhero movie. It would have been about as well remembered as Punisher Warzone. Yes. <laughs> Tom Cruise was still attached to the project. Remember, he was... Really? Yeah. That whole time he was still attached. Even though Leo was rumored, again, can't confirm that. But another interesting casting was that Jamie Foxx was considered for James Rhodes. And then they had Framke Jansen for Bethany Cabe. Now, there was another rumor out there that Hugh Jackman was going to be Tony Stark, but... Why would they do that? He's already playing Wolverine. Yeah. That would be too confusing. That's what confused me as well. And I was like, I don't understand what is happening here. I mean, obviously, it's different studios, so it's not like there's like a canon problem there, but it certainly would have been far too confusing for audiences. Yeah, it would have been. The pre-production, it went on for too long, and then eventually Cassavetes left. Iron Man had lost its momentum. New Line then sold the rights back to Marvel in November of 2006. Marvel, after dealing with bankruptcy, now had the funds to take on the Iron Man movie by themselves, with no other studio involvement, with the exception of Paramount being the distributor, but they don't really have much say in like, the creativity behind it. They would eventually scrap every script that came before this and then reached out to about 30 writers to make this new version, and all of them had declined. I could not find any information as to who those 30 writers were, but I'm sure they just kind of put it out there in the ether and everyone's just like, I'm not touching that. I've seen what's gone on with like the past five scripts before this. I'm, <laughs> I'm not doing that. To try and shape the character, they conducted focus groups to help a perception of Iron Man who, and I didn't really know this as well, like they were asking like, who is Iron Man? And most of them just assumed that he was a robot. Yeah. Like no one actually knew who this character was. And yeah. So to help with this concept, they created three shorts by Blur Studios and Tim Miller, which were called the Iron Man advertorials to help like develop that concept. And you can actually watch these shorts and they're pretty interesting. And a lot of like ideas that you see not really in the Iron Man movies, but in the Avengers, mm -hmm. you actually see a lot of those as well. Like there's one scene where Iron Man, he has like this nuclear bomb and he has to fly it up into space in order for it to explode up there. And then he falls back to earth, but his suit is off because he went too high. Hmm. And that is definitely something that we saw in the first Avengers. Oh yeah. Warning, critical damage. Warning, critical damage. Status. Thrusters offline. Safety protocols offline. Systems reboot in 15 seconds. Planetary impact in six, five. This is gonna four, hurt me. Three. <laughs> impact averted by entity as Hulk. I can't confirm this, but it was claimed by director Len Wiseman that he was slated to direct the first Iron Man for a while. In an interview with comicbookmovies.com, he's quoted saying, Oh man, superheroes. You know, I think a lot of the superheroes that I would have been interested in, a lot of them would have been done. I was involved with Iron Man for about seven months after Underworld 2. I was involved with Marvel and Iron Man, and I was really excited about that one. And honestly, I think at that time, they were concerned that I was too dark of a director because I had only directed a few movies. And at the time, I'd only directed Underworld and Underworld 2. 
And Underworld 2 was very violent, very gory, very dark, and I think it freaked them out a little bit that I was too dark of a director. It wasn't until after Die Hard 4 came out, which was a much lighter tone, much more fun, that Marvel called me up again. I don't think he actually directed anything with Marvel. Has he? No, no, he hasn't. I don't know how much I can trust this <laughs> to be like, oh, yeah. And then they came back for me to do other Marvel stuff. And he hasn't. He actually <laughs> has kind of gone into the DC world. Like he's doing Lucifer, Swamp Thing, still doing Underworld stuff. But like, I don't know where he's getting that. So <laughs> who knows? Maybe he was a consultant. Who knows? Yeah. In April 2006, John Favreau was hired to direct the first Iron Man film. Using his connections with producer Avi Arid, who had worked together on Daredevil, this was an unusual move for Marvel because they were supposed to be making a big blockbuster movie and they hired a small-time independent director. Prior to this, Favreau had directed Elf and Zathura, a space adventure. This would shape the future of Marvel movies, taking a chance on small production directors like James Gunn, the Russo brothers, Taika Waititi, and many more. This movie was going to be different from all the other Marvel properties that have been produced before that were done under different studios. Under the direction of Kevin Feige, he wanted to turn this into a franchise, making this film the launch of Phase 1 mm -hmm. in the MCU. I don't know how accurate this rumor is, but apparently Favreau, he wanted to start the MCU with Captain America instead of Iron Man because Captain America came before Iron Man and he supposedly was going to direct that movie instead. It's weird. I mean, Favreau's definitely the right choice for Iron yeah. Man, though. It makes sense to do it the way they did. It's like, give people the modern hero to like kind of start to establish the baseline. Captain America, the first Avenger, definitely wouldn't have been the right one to start it with because when that came out, people were kind of mixed on it. And I think since then, it's become a lot more beloved. I think one of the big reasons for that is because... It was filmed so much like a period piece. Yeah. At the time, we wanted superhero movies that were superhero movies. And now we want superhero movies that are also something different. We get superhero movies that are also heist movies or superhero movies that are also spy thrillers or superhero movies that are also comedies. That are sitcoms. Live audience sitcoms. <laughs> and so like First Avenger is a superhero movie, but it's also a campy world war ii film definitely something that has aged a whole lot better because now we can look back and be like oh this is kind of the first mcu movie that was trying to also be another thing oh yeah yeah now this next move i believe is probably the smartest move that they could have done and i'm going to be going through a lot of names here okay i will be mispronouncing many of them <laughs> and i'm sorry Art Markham and Matt Halloway were hired to write a script, while Mark Fergus and Hawk Otsby wrote another version with Favreau. And then he then combined both of those scripts together to make one big script. And then he brought in John August to then polish this version of that combined script. After this, and this is the move that I think is the smartest, is that he brought on Marvel comic book staff writers, Mark Miller, Brian Michael Bendis, Joe Cusada, Tom Bravote, Alex Alonzo, and Ralph Macchio. They were all called on by Favreau and actually had a meeting to go over the script to make sure that their material in the script didn't veer 
too far away from the original source material in the comics. So by bringing in all those people to be like, okay, we need to rein this in. And I'm sure that they're the ones who are coming in and be like, oh, this character already exists. Be like, we need an assistant for Iron Man. It's like, oh yeah, Happy. Mm -hmm. Happy's the perfect person to come in and be like the chauffeur. And we don't really need a Jarvis if Happy is constantly around. And we, then we can use Jarvis as like the AI because that was used two years earlier in House of M. Be like, and for them to like be able to navigate, to rein it in and be like, no, this is the comic and we need you to focus in on these areas. And they kind of set up the bumpers yeah. so that there was no way that this movie could fail, that the script could fail. I love that it's kind of got an idea as well of like, it's less about you have to fit within these parameters because this is what the source material is. But it's more like, oh, you're trying to do this kind of thing? Oh, guess what? It already exists in the comics as this. So we can make a tiny adjustment to what you already have to make it be more in line with the comics in a way that like makes everybody happy and makes a better movie. Because it's definitely a line that I think the MCU does really well, where it's not being a one-to-one -one retelling of the source material, but it's also not being somebody who just read a Wikipedia description and is just now doing their own thing based off of that. It's clearly made with the intention of people who love the comics, but also recognize that movies need to be their own thing. Yeah. So things were definitely in motion at Marvel Studios and they began building their sets at the Playa Vista, which, and I love that this goes full circle, this was the same stage where Howard Hughes built the Spruce Goose. <laughs> they then went to the Stan Winston Studios. If you don't know who the Stan Winston Studios are, they are the effects company that's behind the Wookiees. They did special effects for Friday the 13th, The Terminator, Aliens, Edward Scissorhands, Predator, Batman Returns, more specifically the Penguin makeup. They also were in charge of the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park, Titanic, and just so much more and they came to them to help build the iron man suit very cool a lot of the design and prototypes were made but they were constantly running into the same problem they didn't have a tony stark to model these suits so they didn't really have anyone that they could cast into these suits while the script was being developed favreau then approached sam rockwell to play tony stark oh whoa <laughs> But after doing a screen test with Robert Downey Jr., he knew that he was the right actor to play Tony. The studio, I think we mentioned this before, they were not very happy with casting Robert Downey Jr. Mm -hmm. He was a major liability. I believe he was in rehab at this time. He just wasn't doing too well. He kind of hit rock bottom at this moment. And Favreau had to really defend the choice of casting Robert Downey Jr. Saying that of all the people to understand going through your highs and lows, not just by themselves, but like publicly going through their highs and lows, just like Tony Stark, he is the only actor that can really understand where this character is coming from. Yeah, it's perfect casting that launches the whole thing. It's also funny to me how like, do you know about Gravity? No. Robert Downey Jr. was originally cast in the George Clooney role, but he ended up being replaced because... 
gravity was so technical that you needed actors to deliver the exact same take over and over and over again. And Robert Downey Jr. is one of those actors who is always improving and never giving you the same thing twice. You know, some directors really like working with an actor who will do something different every time. Obviously, for Gravity, because of how technical it was, they needed something different. It is also funny to me that like, ah, but he was able to do it for Iron Man. He was able to just improv everywhere for (laughs) Iron Man. But that is how we ended up with the Iron Man that we have today. Yeah. That was pretty much every project that went through that nearly happened for Iron Man. That's the history of Iron Man through cinema. And from there on, I mean, you can see what happened. But yeah, that's it. Good to hear that story. I'm glad we got the version we got and none of those other versions. (laughs) (laughs) I think the way it turned out was definitely very, very good. And now we're looking at the post-Iron Man MCU, which is also really bizarre that we're now in that era with no more Robert Downey Jr. But obviously that presence is going to be felt through all of these movies and TV shows as long as they keep making them. Oh, yeah. This is such a fun journey. Well, I guess it's going to go ahead and wrap us up. So thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Yeah, if you want to find more of this podcast, you can find our website, pipedreampodcasts.com. While you're there, you can check out our other shows, such as Escape from Vault Disney, Come on, Pods, and The Mystery Shack Look Back. You can also find links to our social media pages and our email address, notgetmade at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. That's going to go ahead and wrap us up. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. 